from National Securities Corporation. It's the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, where we discuss insights and trends from an investment banking perspective with the investors, corporate leaders, and other stakeholders participating in the industries that grow, process, and market the food that we consume. I'm Ivan Saval, and I oversee the Agribusiness and Food Coverage Group, providing capital markets and financial advisory. All podcast episodes are for informational purposes only and are not to be construed as a solicitation of securities. Any thoughts expressed by myself and or our guests are solely our own and are not those of National Securities Corporation. On today's podcast, I'm having a conversation with my good friend, Philippe De La Perouse, who's the managing director at HighQuest Partners. He uh, leads the strategic advisory practice and also chairs the Global Ag Investing Conference Series. I've known Philippe for several years now, and I thought it would be really interesting to have him on this podcast because he's so well integrated in the agribusiness community, both uh, in the U.S. and internationally. Uh, he appears uh, in many conferences and is also uh, a fairly active uh, doing other podcasts and, and radio interviews. So it's my pleasure to have Philippe on this podcast. So Philippe, thank you very much for agreeing to uh, to join us today. Yeah, I look forward to uh, speaking with you, Ivan. You know, I think the, the I think it'd be very interesting to start off this conversation, Philippe, if you could just give a background on yourself and how you, you sort of gravitated into the ag space and just All help right. us understand you know, what it was that interested you and and, uh, uh, and why it is that you're in this sector and, and just give us some uh, some background there before we go into to some topics that I'd like to discuss with you. Sure. Uh, well, um, I kind of grew up in, in, uh, with uh, an interest uh, from a very young age in agriculture because of uh, my family uh, background. Um, I'm half French, half American. On my French side, my family's been involved in farming and agriculture for, <laughs> I guess, you know, centuries. I mean, most people in France come from the countryside and have a, a rural background. And uh, in the case of my family, uh, that was certainly the case. And um, it just so happened that uh, my family was mostly uh, historically have always been in the military, but they also had farms and would farm. And my grandfather, after the Second World War, uh, saw an opportunity um, to launch uh, corn in France because he saw a lot of corn coming in uh, with the GIs uh, in 44-45. And uh, he um, uh, decided to, uh, he was a pioneer of corn in the southwest of France and launched corn, uh, installed the first industrial corn dryer in the southwest of France and uh, is known as kind of the pioneer of corn. And that, that area of France now is a big area for corn production in France. So wow. um, I, I always, got, yeah, so I, I always had an interest in rural areas. I grew up uh, in New Jersey, about an hour south of New York, and worked on a family of, of uh, farm of um, family uh, friends. Uh, stacking uh, baling hay, stacking hay in barns, and uh, it was a corn uh, soybean uh, operation, and they they produced some other things. But I've always had an interest from a very young age in connecting to the rural and uh, economy, and uh, that just continued on. And so I, after um, I, you know, I went and got an MBA at the University of Virginia uh, after uh, working in the paper industry following college, and uh, went to work in investment banking in New York. And then when I decided, and I always had in the back of my mind, I wanted to work in some aspect of agriculture. And uh, when I decided to leave investment banking, 
Um, I ended up joining uh, Ralston Purina, which at the time was the largest feed company in the world and uh, privately held or a publicly traded company, but private as opposed to a co-op, uh, and joined the international division and worked there for about 13 years. And then uh, had a little stint in between working um, for a private equity fund in, uh, in Russia during the 94-95 uh, period, and then came back and joined Bungie, uh, which, as you know, is the world's largest edible oil feed processor, uh, where I was director of business development for the North American operations and spokesman for the company before and after the IPO in 2000. So as I tell people, I uh, kind of learned the business I've spent over 30 years in the industry and kind of went from the value end with it lost into the commodity and um, with Bungie. So I have kind of um, I kind of an interesting, you know, um, run in, in the industry in terms of having really seen a lot of facets of the industry throughout the, the supply chain. So that kind of led to me uh, going out and starting to consult at when I left Bungie in 2003, and then I joined um, on my own, and then I joined HighQuest, uh, which was starting to focus uh, on specifically on the food and ag sector in 2006 for a strategy advisory uh, as a strategy advisory firm, and and then uh, we we launched the global ag investing uh, conference series in 2009. So it's you know taken off from there. And we, we advise companies, uh, you know, strategic investors, companies, um, uh, public sector entities, trade industry trade organizations, and institutional investors on making informed decisions about strategy and uh, resource allocation. So, you know, allocation of capital into the sector. And our practice is uh, global. I mean, about 60% of what we do has to do with of the engagements we take on have to do with um, either clients or, or projects outside uh, North America. 40% is related to North America, which would include Canada and Mexico, of course. And uh, so the, um, so we've, uh, you know, I've probably led about 70 projects since I've joined uh, HighQuest about 10 years ago. And uh, the Global Ag Investing Conference Series obviously gives us a, a very good uh, perspective uh, on what's going on in the industry um, as as agriculture and food become a, emerges a, as a, an asset class uh, on its own. Yeah, it's interesting you say it's becoming an asset class of its own. It's it, it certainly is, and it's it's a process that, in my mind, sort of started uh, you know ten or fifteen years ago. But you know, sort of when China entered the WTO, we really saw an explosion in interest in, in ag around that time frame. You know, given given your background, that's one of the key reasons why I wanted to talk to you because you 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 really understand the sector from a variety of angles. I'm I'm wondering if uh, if you could provide us your views. And you know, we I realize that the ag space has several uh, sectors and subsectors, but if there's a piece of the agricultural uh, value chain uh, where you have a level of comfort to sort of discuss where trends are. Um, I think that would be uh, I think it'd be interesting to have a, a conversation around where you think we are uh, in the cycle, given given the, the farm economy on some areas uh, are, are struggling. Obviously, where one is struggling, uh, another might be a beneficiary. But if you could mm-hmm. get some thoughts on on trends that you're seeing in the agribusiness uh, sectors, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, when we started the Global Ag Investing Conference Series in New York, uh, it was June of 2009. That was coming off the, on the heels of the, um, the, the uh, uh, you know, the uh, financial crisis in the previous fall, where, you know, with the Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers uh, collapses. And, uh, and so institutional investors that had been 
uh, investing in timber as part of their alternative allocation. We're starting to look at farmland um, as another asset that could add to that allocation. Uh, but they really didn't know how to approach it and, and who the players were. So that's they convinced us to launch that the conference uh, or to uh, organize the conference. And of course, that winter we thought, you know, who's going to come? But it ended up being oversubscribed and success. And you know, the the the, the history is has proven. You know, since then we of course we expanded it to Europe and to Asia, um, and um, and uh, launched the AgTech Week uh, three years ago, and the Middle East as well because we held our conference in Abu Dhabi and Dubai for uh, four years. Um, but initially, the focus was very much on real assets, on farmland, and, and that was driven by commodity prices. I mean, we saw commodity prices for corn and soybeans in particular, you know, uh, they were kind of the, the, the leading edge here, uh, really uh, dramatically increased from the 2004 period up, and you saw a big increase in the, uh, the fleet of uh, uh, renewable energy, you know, ethanol by diesel plants here in the U.S., uh, following the... Um, the uh, the passage of the uh, renewable fuel standards, um, uh, which which uh, you know promoted and and, and required um, inclusion of uh, you know fuels uh, derived from uh, biomass into the uh, fuel supply in the U.S. Um, and so initially, the focus and the media was very much focused on on farmland prices and has been for the last couple of years and rising commodity prices and food you know the food security issue, which remains a an issue, I would uh, argue, uh, despite um, what we've seen as uh, you know very uh, you know bumper crops, uh, particularly in over the last two to three years in, in corn and soybeans, with a resulting uh, you know erosion of, of prices, though not to I would note not to historic um, um, uh, you know uh, means or the you know the historic uh, historic levels. So we haven't reverted to historic levels on those prices, but that certainly has had an impact on farmland prices. But I would argue that um, that all led to the, um, the capital markets realizing and investors realizing because of volatility um, overall in the markets that, you know, an exposure to agriculture in some aspects uh, had could play a very important role in mitigating volatility on returns in, in uh, underlying portfolios. And um, so as the market, uh, particularly institutional investors, but as the market in general becomes more uh, educated and sophisticated, uh, I think there's a realization that there are a number of different ways to get exposure uh, into ag and that agriculture in general and the food industry are, are, um, are kind of the underlying underpinning of most economies. When you think of it, a lot of the chemical industry, a lot of uh, uh, other industries uh, that uh, have uh, historically came out of agriculture. Uh, when you think of the United States and you think of France, two different countries, uh, which with very rich uh, agricultural uh, capabilities, a lot of industry in those both countries came uh, emanated from the ag sector, from rural economies. So, um, and I think we're going to see the same thing replicate in uh, other regions. Uh, Africa is an example um, uh, where there are opportunities there. And we, and uh, you know, with the urbanized populations, growing middle class, we see the same sort of curve uh, and progression uh, taking place, but at a much faster pace. So um, I think that um, within our second year of our global ag investing, we saw interest in public equities, private equity opera opportunities, which are presumed taking on operating risk. I know you had two speakers. Uh, you've spoken with um, Einar Knudsen uh, of AGR and uh, Mark Zanuck of Tilridge, uh, both focused in that area. 
And um, I th- so we see a whole ecosystem of investors coming into the space with different risk uh, and reward um, um, uh, kind of uh, uh, parameters that they have uh, looking at opportunities to invest. So, you know, uh, a, um, an, uh, a pension fund investing for the long term to match their liabilities of 25, 30 years is going to be continuing to look at the real assets at farmland. And I would argue that those who are already committed and have bought into that macro theme, the, you know, the, uh, the, um, the drop that we've seen in farmland price levels uh, over the last two to th- two years provides an, a buying opportunity for them uh, because they're really committed to this over a 25, 30 year period. Whereas, you know, investors looking for a higher return, uh, 15, 20% are going to be looking at private equity situations where uh, they're taking on more operating risk. Um, and then there's obviously in the, the uh, we've seen a, uh, over the last three years, as you know, uh, a tremendous surge in um, uh, capital coming into uh, to fund ag tech uh, opportunities. So um, I think that all kind of speaks to the fact that this is becoming an asset class, similar to what you see in the energy industry, where you know you have production, you have refining, you have uh, oil field services. I mean, there are a lot of different components uh, for uh, that go into the energy industry, which provide you know investors with different risk reward uh, opportunities. So uh, right now, what we see um, and that we've seen over the last two to three years is um, um, increased interest in what we would call permanent crops or niche crops, uh, which would uh, which would presume taking on some sort of operating risk because when you when you invest in those sectors, you have to be um, managing the crop all the way through to uh, you know not only in the production on the land but also distribution to uh, to the to the clients. Um, and typically, those products don't aren't stores of value the way soybeans and corn are. I mean, if you're looking at uh, papayas or uh, mangoes or fruit or or nut trees and that sort of thing, or olives, um, those those products don't have the same uh, shelf store, uh, you know, um, uh, life on the shelf that other commodities do. So you have to you're adding value to those products, or you know, minimally processing them in the first stage. Uh, so we see a lot of interest in that area. We see um, a lot of interest in services, inputs and services going in to uh, crop production. So you see roll-up strategies now for uh, distribution of, of, uh, of, of uh, crop um, uh, inputs, uh, seeds. Um, we're going to see a lot of activity, I think, uh, in terms of uh, spin-offs from the, uh, the major biotech seed companies, uh, given the, the, the consolidation uh, that's occurring in that sector. So they're there are players circling around trying to figure out how to play that uh, play that uh, trend. Uh, so I think um, you know I think the the media has picked up on you know farmland prices are dropping, so all of a sudden there's catastrophe in the uh, the farm sector. But I think that just creates opportunities for those uh, investors who have become educated and see this as an uh, you know this sector as a long term opportunity, a long term play. Yeah, I think that's uh, you're spot on. I, I've you know, seen uh, or heard and been in part of conversations with financial buyers that historically have never looked at the the sector uh, on an aggregate basis, let alone on a specific opportunity. And more of those conversations are 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 happening. And uh, I think that it's it's just telling that the you know the financial buyers see. Yes, there is an opportunity here, and uh, on certain parts of the value chain, now is a potentially good time to uh, to, to to enter. Um, 
if we could just drill down a little bit more on some areas that are, are what I think trending, um, one would be the organic, uh, both on mm-hmm. the uh, uh, sure. farmland and also on mm-hmm. just general agricultural production, and then also on the on the animal health side. Uh, sure, so there's a there's a big debate around antibiotic free ABF. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so if you could talk a little bit about those two segments, uh, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, the organic um, sector, uh, well, organic products uh, in general, not uh, organic, that would, would include uh, fruits and vegetables, have been um, growing at, a, I think, about a 14% uh, growth, uh, compound growth uh, over the last uh, four or five years. Uh, organic uh, animal protein, which would include milk um, and meat and eggs, has been growing at, uh, during that period at, at about a 11 12% growth rate. Uh, and I'm speaking about the U.S. market. Um, uh, the, in Europe, that, that would be referred to as bio or bio as opposed to organic, uh, at least on the continent. So we, we've seen, uh, but just specifically uh, uh, addressing the U.S. market, um, we see tremendous uh, consumer demand for, for those, but for, our, or, you know, quote unquote, uh, organic products. Um, and uh, that, and I have to admit that seven years ago, seven, eight years ago, I was somewhat skeptical that the uh, the sector was going to develop uh, as fast as it has, um, and so uh, in the U.S., what that's led to is, um, you know, tremendous demand to support uh, the production of uh, poultry, of uh, chicken uh, broilers, broiler meat, uh, and uh, and laying or eggs, egg production, um, and swine and hog, uh, and also dairy to a lesser extent, but uh, you know. Um, for for uh, but dairy, of course, uh, a lot of dairy uh, organic is um, is uh, can, uh, is great using. They're using grazing as well. But for those products, uh, they need to um, have access to organic uh, feed ingredients, so protein meal and um, and energy, which is basically corn. And uh, the challenge there is that there's insufficient production in North America, Canada, and the U.S. to meet the the growth in demand for those feed ingredients to keep fueling uh, that production of animal protein. So as a consequence, we've seen a tremendous increase in the um, import of uh, organic uh, feed ingredients from abroad from very from a, a wide range of countries that I think would surprise um, consumers in this country, which include Uganda, Ethiopia, Kazakhstan, uh, India, uh, the Black Sea region, Turkey. And um, of course, that puts a lot of pressure on the supply chain and also raises um uh, risk in terms of traceability, you know, risk for some of the major brands that are getting into the sector. So, uh, but we do see tremendous uh, I- uh, increase in uh, interest for organic. Um, at the same time, uh, there is um, increased interest on the part of consumers and also pressure from regulators um, uh, to reduce, well, pressure from regulators um, uh, internationally, uh, but at the national level uh, amongst the, the major production countries to reduce the, uh, the amount of antibiotics uh, um, applied in animal production. Uh, antibiotics are used in three different ways um, in animal production and uh, as therapeutic uh, therapy or, or cure when, a, when, a, um, when animals get sick, uh, but um, they also are used as preve- in preventative applications at a lower dosage level sub uh, sub uh, sub um, therapy level uh, to prevent uh, contagion and then they're u- used uh, even more um, 
uh, widely um, have been as uh, growth promoters at sub-therapy uh, uh, dosage levels uh, to uh, increase uh, yield and increase production. And um, just this January, starting January 1, the U.S. has um, uh, outlawed the ban, the use of uh, what are considered medically important um, antibiotics. Those are antibiotics used in human medicine uh, for use as uh, growth promoters. So, um, And so what that's led to, and, and, and we expect and one can expect that that will then in the next couple of years, we'll see their, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, also banning the use of antibiotics as pre- in preventative treatments. Um, and we are following the EU in that lead. The EU is really kind of the, is, is the, uh, the leader in that uh, worldwide in terms of uh, they, they banned uh, growth promoters back in 2006 and are about to probably on the cusp of banning their use in preventative. So this has a lot of uh, implications. Um, both for consumers, consumers are demanding this, um, but also has implications for producers that are engaged in exporting products because they have to make sure that their products are meeting the, uh, the requirements of uh, their dest- the destination market, you know, the, uh, their export customers. And um, so this has wa- worldwide implications for, for example, uh, you know, producers in Brazil that are exporting to Europe or, or producers in Thailand exporting outside of uh, their markets. And um, we just have completed a, um, uh, uh, an engagement for a client that's focused on, um, that's in the feed sector, that's looking at uh, developing new feed, uh, health-promoting feed additives to replace antibiotics. But what this presumes is that um, there's going to be a whole a host of new products, but also it's going to change how animals are actually physically managed uh, in operations. It's, it's not just, you know, replacing antibiotics with another product. But it's really kind of play, uh, uh, changing the management systems uh, in these operations. So that's going to create a lot of opportunity for investors, uh, both in terms of um, on the pharmaceutical uh, uh, feed additive side, but also in terms of uh, hardware for managing the animals, how they're housed, um, and also opportunities uh, for for improved uh, management practices. So, um, th- and this is all because uh, of the. Um, the, uh, the increase in antimicrobial uh, resistance of bacteria, uh, which is a huge um, challenge for the uh, for a, a world challenge, really. Uh, the UK undertook a study about a year ago and uh, estimates that if, if this issue is not addressed properly, that by 2050, we could see 10 million deaths a year uh, in the world, uh, 5 million of them in Asia. I think it's 300,000 in North America. Uh, due to uh, the inability uh, to treat certain diseases uh, 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 because of the lack of uh, uh, the proper antibiotics to deal with them, simply because we don't have the antibiotics to address certain uh, pathogens. So this is a, a major challenge that um, it's, it's, it's quite uh, concerning, but it also, I think, is, uh, represents a, a business opportunity. But when you take both the antibiotic issue and the organic issue, I would argue that long term, what we're seeing is a move to um, in agriculture to be sustainable. Um, that that was kind of um, a jargon term that was used four or five years ago uh, in the investment community, really to deal with reputational risk on investment projects. Now that still is an issue for the in, for investors looking to invest in agriculture. 
But I would argue that sustainability is probably over the long term going to encompass both organic and this antibiotic and, you know, water usage and whatever. And that's where I think the market is going. It's going, we're going to see consumers and, and regulators uh, uh, demanding uh, that products that they are provided in the marketplace are, are produced uh, sustainably. So I think a lot of the ag tech that we see coming in, uh, a lot of uh, new technologies are kind of in their particular areas of focus are kind of addressing that issue uh, at the at, when you when you kind of you know t- you t- take it down to its basic um, uh, elements that that's where where the, the industry is going. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. I mean, the term sustainability has uh, become somewhat uh, ubiquitous now when it comes to having conversations about opportunities in agriculture. Uh, that word really rarely surfaced a few years ago, but now I hear it uh, mm-hmm. all the time, and it's I think it's uh, I think it's good. I mean, we are the stewards of this planet, and we have amazing uh, technolo- technolo- technological developments that are sort of right. on the horizon to help better manage soil and plant nutrition yeah. and, and biopesticides and and this whole natural movement uh, that's, that's being consumer driven is, I think it's, it's, it's definitely the right, right way to go. So we're at a very interesting point uh, in, in the space uh, from con- you know, sort of conventional to more natural, better farming practices, but being able to do so and still get good yield. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you think about it, Ivan, it, it's, it, uh, it makes eminent sense. What basically it means, I mean, as I said, you know, sustainability was kind of a catch-all phrase that was used. People kind of gave it short uh, shrift, you know, a couple of years ago, and it was considered a bit of a, you know, a fad. But really, what it really means is that we're internalizing all costs. And we're and now, you know, with sensors and everything, we're able to determine what those costs are to the environment and to, to society and in terms of, you know, pollution or runoff or whatever. And uh, if we want to, you know, achieve certain objectives, what we're saying is these costs can now be internalized. So the technologies that are being de- developed are enabling the producers uh, to, to uh, address, you know, cover those costs, to, you know, to address them, to mitigate them, to reduce them. And uh, that's what is. So it's really an economic uh, uh, model uh, when you think about it. Yeah, and it sort of has to be in order for the farmer to adopt it. At the end of the day, the producer mm-hmm. needs to make economic sense um, more so than than the sustainable sense. And and I think the the uh, the passage of time has sort of led the sustainability model to be a bit more efficient, economical, right. And, right. and and making sense for the producer to apply. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that's and that's where policy comes in, regulation, and and all the po- the politics surrounding this are. Are you know all you know addressing the issue? Well, you know how do you assure that there's an equal playing field uh, for producers in different uh, regions, taking into account that they have certain advantages or disadvantages uh, depending on whether they have access to you know sufficient water, whether it's rain-fed, irrigated, uh, you know. So that get, that gets um, that's where you get into the you know the the intricacies of it. But I mean, it um, I do think that the sustainability is where we're headed. I'm talking to Philippe de la Perouse, Managing Director of HighQuest Partners. We're discussing trends in agribusiness, having a great conversation around where we think our investment opportunities are. Philippe, as we wrap up this conversation, I'd love to get your view on 
the impact of the Trump administration and recent announcements on potential cuts uh, in, in terms of several billion dollars in the USDA, whether or not that actually goes through the House uh, is one thing, but what that messages out to the sector. Uh, I'd love yeah. to get your thoughts, and I'm sure our, my mm-hmm. audience would love to hear what you think the impact is of the Trump administration. Yeah, well, I mean, um, <laughs> that's a kind of a loaded question, um, obviously. But, uh, you know, I, I think um, uh, there are a couple of items that are, uh, you know, at, um, at stake here. Um, one is the, you know, our trade policy uh, outside the country, the uh, trans, for instance, you know, having pulled back from uh, uh, and dropped the, uh, the negotiations on the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the whole issue about renegotiation of NAFTA. Um, there's an issue of immigration and, and, uh, uh, how that's, you know, labor is going to be, you know, well, you know, uh, illegal immigration in the U S and, and the workforce, uh, that's used, uh, at the farm level for, um, for harvesting, planting and harvesting crops. Um, and there's the farm bill, as you mentioned. Um, uh, and then there's the whole issue about, uh, and which addresses the issue we just talked about, sustainability, climate change, whether or not you believe that that's an issue and, and uh, how, how that needs to be addressed or should be addressed. Um, so I, just a couple of things. I, I thought it was a little funny. Uh, I, I was a little surprised, I should say, that uh, one of the last cabinet um, nominees um, uh, to be announced uh, was uh, USDA secretary. I thought that was a little funny, if or uh, I, I didn't understand that, given that the constituency of the new administration uh, was was uh, very much rural, not just uh, rural, but uh, there was uh, a big component of the uh, support for the uh, the um, the incoming uh, or the, uh, the the administration, um, I th- I have to wonder if um, the approach that the new administration is taking on some of these issues is it going to run into a roadblock with that constituency? Um, we saw back I think uh, very early on, if it wasn't the end of January, beginning of uh, February, 133 ag industry, food and ag industry uh, trade associations sent a, uh, a joint letter to the new administration um, requesting that they reconsider uh, uh, dropping out of the uh, TPP uh, negotiations because they saw that as being uh, advantageous to uh, for increasing exports of, of uh, farm commodities from the U.S. Um, I was at the, uh, the poultry show in Atlanta uh, back in um, the end of uh, the end of January and uh, had numerous conversations uh, with individuals in the industry who are very concerned about uh, uh, the prospect of uh, some sort of um, trade um, war d- developing between and, you know, kind of uh, fracture occurring between the U.S. and Mexico, um, where there was fear that, um, uh, that that could lead to punitive tariffs being placed on U.S. exports of, of commodities, uh, corn and soybeans. I don't think I, you know, Mexico uh, is now our our largest uh, uh, customer for corn, uh, and I think it's our largest uh, uh, customer for soybeans. So, uh, uh, and to a lesser extent, soybean meal, but mostly soybeans. So uh, that that could have a very um, negative consequence for the uh, farm belt, for the corn belt uh, uh, here in the Midwest, and. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you my, my opinion, my personal opinion, but I, I do think that there is a lot of concern in the uh, farm economy uh, as to how this uh, administration is going to uh, proceed. And then uh, when you think about um, 
uh, labor, um, you know, we haven't, uh, robots haven't arrived yet uh, to, uh, to harvest uh, many of the, the uh, uh, garden crops of fruits and vegetables out in the, on the West Coast in California and Arizona, as well as down in the south, uh, southeast of the U.S. And uh, those, um, those operations rely on, on uh, fairly um, inexpensive labor. Uh, so if that labor is no longer available, uh, that's going to result in rising food prices, uh, which is going to hit um, a core constituency uh, of the administration in the Midwest. So um, I, you know, I have concerns um, that uh, there may be some some actions taken uh, with uh, where the unintended consequences may not have been thoroughly uh, thought out in advance. Um, well, you know, it remains to be seen what will, what will happen. Um, I, I find it curious too um, that uh, the the outgoing administration didn't do a better job of uh, promoting what they had done for the rural economy. I think there was a lot of effort uh, put under um, Tom Vilsack, who was uh, sec- secretary of uh, agriculture um, for the whole tenure of uh, uh, President Obama, really promoting. Um, not only uh, production and, and different kinds of production from the rural sector, but also broad, you know, the extension of broadband uh, in rural areas to increase um, uh, the access for people in rural areas to, to the uh, U.S. economy. So I think there was a lot of, I thought, quite interesting uh, developments that were uh, undertaken. Uh, you know, it's, it remains to be seen really where this administration is going to go with, uh, with uh, you know, the Farm Bill, of course, you know, cuts at USDA. I mean, the, the, these cuts have been announced in the current budget for you know the EPA and a lot of other um, a lot of other um, departments. Um, whether or not that actually you know you know is passed is is another story. Um, but it's uh, it'd be unfortunate to see a lot of these things cut away, given us some of the progress that's been made in rural America over the last eight years. Yeah. Well, certainly interesting times where we find ourselves, Philippe. Uh, yeah. Listen, mm-hmm. you know, I, I want to thank you very much for for taking time out of your busy schedule to to have this conversation. I thought it was uh, uh, really informative, and I'm hopeful that uh, I'll be able to see you at the uh, at the Global Ag Investing Conference. Can you just remind me again when what, what the date is for that? Uh, that is uh, that's going to take place in New York on April 18th through the 22nd, I believe. Or the twenty third. Okay. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Eighteen, nineteen, twenty first. I'm sorry. Eighteenth to the twenty first in New York at the Grand Hyatt. Perfect. Well, that's in my backyard. So uh, shame on me if I don't get over there. So I'll, yeah, well, I'll try I'll... to find you over there, and we'll, we'll uh, we should try to uh, grab a coffee. Great. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing you. Ivan. Thanks very right, much. Philippe. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. This discussion has been brought to you by the Agribusiness Advisor Podcast, sponsored by National Securities Corporation, a full-service investment banking firm, member FINRA. Please stay tuned for future conversations with leadership in the agribusiness sectors. If you have comments, questions, please feel free to reach out, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you, and here's to next time.